This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, listening in. My old friend Ted Widmer, or to some Lord Rockingham of the upper crust, is a busy man. Once a White House speechwriter, he followed Bill Clinton out of office, interviewing him ad nauseum for the former president's autobiography. Now, from his perch at Brown, he's a senior advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and just edited the bestseller Listening In, the secret White House recordings of John F. Kennedy. These tapes are as rare as a trillion-dollar coin, mostly because presidents don't make them anymore, at least not any that we know about. If Barack Obama, thinking about that most rare moment, the second inaugural address, is talking with aides on what it should contain, would we ever hear that chat? We'll talk to Ted about presidents, their recordings, and their speeches. Then, on the topic of listening in, we'll listen to Bill Nichols, managing editor of Politico. I was struck by Politico's coverage earlier this week of the Club for Growth and its emerging influence with the Republican caucus in Congress. Bill, as a giant of Washington journalism and a son of the South, has a unique perch to both bring us into the newsroom and shed new light on how representatives of rural and often southern districts are carving their own paths with their voting record. But first, I'm joined from Washington by my co-host, Adam Belmar, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Adam, of course, was production chief in the George W. Bush administration the same role I played in the Clinton White House. Adam, this week, the lens of Pete Souza, which has been such a powerful tool for projecting the image of President Obama over the past four years, may have inadvertently revived the old chatter that this White House is a bit of a boys' club. What do you think? Ruh-roh. Ruh. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the truth of the matter is that the, the, the smartest and the best have risen to the top. And the president has surrounded himself with just the right group of people in his inner circle. Now, that picture, you're right, is a lot of testosterone uh, in that shot. Um, Correct me, though. I think Valerie Jarrett was hiding in the back somewhere. You couldn't see her. You can see her legs, or it's been pointed out that those are her legs, although she's hidden by Dan Pfeiffer. I'll take that on faith, that those were her legs. But uh, really, there are, uh, and and you know how I love to be cynical and snarky. I can't find a way to be cynical and snarky here because I feel like, there is something the president's not getting credit for. There are so many women and minorities, and they're not there because they're women and minorities. There's so much diversity at lower levels in this administration. The next generation of power players, of inner sanctum advisors are being groomed there. And you see that with the deputy chief of staff for operations. She is everywhere a trusted aide. Um, I think that, that this is a bit trumped up. That's how I feel about it. It may be trumped up, Adam, but but from a process standpoint, I mean, I don't think anyone else around the chatter this week, which is focused on the picture itself, is talking about the process of the picture. And you and I have had Pete on the show. We love Pete. We think he's doing revolutionary stuff. But what about the notion of, as he's editing his own material, the thousands of pictures, to pick a shot of the over-the-shoulder shot of our first African-American president, Looking back at what I'm looking at it now, front page of the New York Times, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten advisors, one of whom is African-American, the rest of whom are Caucasian. And this is a picture that the White House itself puts out. Times pounces on it. You're right. And they did and, and they should have. And so it's not concocted in that way. But from an, from an optics perspective and, and then being grounded in, in, in sort of White House experience, this would be a very good example of why you don't let photographers decide what they edit, that the, that the communications department should have a very thoughtful hand in what gets released. And, and, and in, in instances like this, where the sort of freedom and the transparency and the, and the, the ability to be self-governing that Pete and his team uh, have have enjoyed, it comes with risk. And not because you want to cover it up, 
you don't want to say, oh, we, we're, we're trying to hide that uh, the top aides are men. But there's something impolitic, if you will, about having released that photo without at least thinking. Um, it's perfect example also with this whole idea of what AIG has been up to this week, releasing this whole Thank You America ad campaign while the board considered whether or not they were going to sue the American people, the government, uh, in the same breath as they thank them. And then you end up with uh, the, the Thank You campaign you know, being utilized by John Stewart, others, and you know, you just bleep out the thank, and then suddenly it turns into beep you, and you know, it, it, these pictures can be so telling, and they can be subverted as well. Yeah, I know. If John Stewart was sort of aching for material yesterday, I watched the whole thing. It's like 15 minutes of perfect setup against AIG. Well, they they were dummies, and then they really sort of did something smart and good, and then they just found out at the last minute a way to really bollocks it up. Well, it's an, a picture of amazing texture of the Oval Office circa 2013, 2012, the fight over the fiscal cliff. But we're going to go back 50 years to the Oval Office of John F. Kennedy. Adam, we're two weeks away from the second inaugural of President Barack Obama, a rare event if ever there is one in Washington, D.C. And as I was thinking about that, I thought no better person, as I referred to in the intro, to talk to than Ted Widmer, uh, my old friend from the White House, Brown University, now a senior advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and the author of Listening In, the Secret White House Recordings of President John F. Kennedy. Ted, I know you're on your way back to the Acela from work at Foggy Bottom. Thanks so much for stopping by with us. My pleasure, Josh. Thank you for having me. Uh, You know, first of all, it was, uh, is there some sort of a glossnose going on now at Columbia Point? Because I'm halfway through David Nasa's piece, uh, The Patriarch on Joseph P. Kennedy, unvarnished view of of the ambassador to the UK that both Senator Kennedy uh, and the rest of their family authorized warts and all. And now you working with Caroline, uh, have come out with uh, listening in, and it reveals, you know, both the uh, sort of confident president and also the self-doubting president and the president who can at times be profane. What was yes. the sort of criterion which Caroline reached out to you? Well, I had known her uh, through a couple other um, experiences earlier in my life, and I, I worked with her brother at George Magazine in the 90s, which was a, a great experience. For and the great Gary Ginsburg. Yes, um, but for I, I did history pieces for George, and it, it was a great way to learn how to write history in a non-academic way. And uh, Caroline cares a lot about history. She loves history. The whole family loves history and, and always has. And I think they're conscious of a few New th- new tools in the toolkit that the internet is incredible, a- as you know, and we can put a lot more out there and let the American people study history up close and personal without a lot of historians telling telling them what to think, and that's overwhelmingly a good thing. And as tapes are coming to surface, so- some come come to light have come to light very recently. It's a great thing to get them out to people to listen to and let them judge for themselves. And in in fact, it's hard to massage a tape. It, it, it's often hard to even hear the the words. So I, I think it is simplest and best and most direct to just give access to the people and let them think about it for themselves. So that, that was basically what we did. And there were no special instructions to me. She just asked me to introduce them and think about them and think about the most interesting ones to get out to people. So that's what I did. And it was really a joy. It was a joy to learn a lot of new stuff about a president I, I thought I knew very well, and I think most Americans feel they know very, very well, John F. Kennedy. But in fact, there there were new things that came out, um, expressions of worry, uh, some, some thoughts that were kind of apolitical that he said early on in the book, um, how he w- didn't feel at all that he was a natural politician. He felt he was too shy in some ways to be a good politician, which is not how we think of him. Um, but a lot of very exciting inner moments in inside meetings in the Oval Office at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis or the civil rights struggles. And you just can't get enough of that stuff. I mean, I know you're a junkie for political history, just like me. And I wish we had more presidential tapes than we do. We've really only got a a few of them. Uh, Kennedy, LBJ, and Nixon, who did it extensively, a little bit here and there otherwise, but not not too much. I have a question on that. Do you you have a sense that it was a deep 
interest in history that these presidents shared that led to this, or was it the novelty of the availability and the innocuous sort of nature of recording that they could do, and so they did it? That's a good question, Adam, and I I don't know. I mean, that was the mystery for me throughout editing the JFK tapes, is why did he do it? And I I don't have a a precise answer. Um, There is an oral history by the technician who worked for the Secret Service, who helped him install the tapes, and no explanation, although he speculated that the Cold War was intense at that moment, as as we know. And that led me to wonder, um, Kennedy had gotten some pretty bad advice around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1961, and his timing turned out to be very good because the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 62 was coming up right when he installed it, but still just don't know. Um, it's it's a two-way street. You have great access to history for yourself if you're planning to write memoirs. You can remember things perfectly later on because you've got it captured on tape. As Nixon discovered, it's also self-incriminating. And so it's a very dangerous thing to tape record every word spoken in an Oval Office, but it is fantastic for the historians. Well, we've heard a lot of the recordings uh about James Meredith and the civil rights struggle and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the calls to Truman and Eisenhower. But just to give a flavor of the way these sound, and because, frankly, that's one of the clearest recordings we have, I'd love to hear the recording of President Kennedy as he calls up to uh, his Air Force aide following the uh, publication of pictures of Jackie oh, Kennedy's yeah. that's uh, a good one. hospital ward in Massachusetts. General, yes, sir. That Air Force is... Caused itself more grief with that silly bastard. Did you see the post this morning? Yes, sir. I'm looking. See that fellow's picture by the bed? Yes, sir. They, and you see that furniture they bought from Jordan Marsh? What the hell did they let the reporters in there for? Are they crazy up there? Now you know what's going to do. Any congressman's going to get up and say, Christ, if they can throw $5,000 away on this, let's cut them another billion dollars. You just sank the Air Force budget. You're crazy up there. Are they crazy? That silly bastard with his picture next to the bed? Sir, I'm uh, appalled, but... Uh... Well, I'm appalled, too. Uh, now, the I thing is, I, the uh, thing of the matter is, I'm going to get that furniture. I've just told Sylvester, you can talk to him. I want to find out if we pay for that furniture, because I want it to go back to Jordan Marshall's. All right, sir. Then I want that fellow's incompetent who had his picture taken next to Mrs. Kennedy's bed, if that's what it is. I mean, he's a silly bastard. I wouldn't have him running a cat house. And that uh, Colonel Carlson, who led in Larry Newman and those reporters, is he crazy too? Christ, they're not all incompetent. Is that the way they're throwing money around over there? You better look into it, and especially when you told me that they hadn't spent a cent. Well, sir, this is uh, obviously... Uh, well, this is obviously a... <laughs> well, t- Ted, first of all, it was the mention of Jordan Marsh, which you and I as Bostonians uh, yeah. have to be very nostalgic the late, about. Late lamented, yeah. But second of all, he sounds like just downright Clinton-esque, doesn't he? Well, he's angry. I, I feel I feel the pain of the uh, guy bearing the brunt of presidential anger, which you and I both have have borne that brunt. But um, you know, in listening over and over again, there are moments when he seems to be suppressing a little chuckle. It's kind of a, a display of a temper tantrum for a purpose. But then he threatens to send that aide up to Alaska, and he chuckles a little bit. So you know, the day went on and passed, and wasn't the worst crisis in the world. I love the common man's English at the end. Uh, because there's something very human about that that's uh, not born of the lofty rhetoric and the, and right, the visionary speech that we always think of with that with John I, Kennedy. I agree. They all know those words and use them, and especially the presidents who've served in uh, in the military. As JFK was a, a lieutenant, and especially at the lower levels of rank in, the, in World War II, those words were very useful and very widely used. And uh, so... Uh, it's it's a normal English word, and, and there it is in the historical record. Ted, here's a clip that wasn't in sort of the, the group of clips that, that sort of made it into public when the book was right out, but it's a conversation between the president and his pal, Lem Billings, and, you know, he needed to establish his independence from his father, Joseph Kennedy, so Lem was an old friend of his who became a trusted aide and a friend of his and Bobby's for the rest of their lives, and they're talking about their weekend plans coming up, and I'd like to listen to it, and then... Get your sense of, tell us about the process you went in, ter- in terms of reviewing all of these tapes and, and how much it sort of brought you back to 1962 and 1963. Hello. Ma'am? 
Hello? Where are you? Oh, hi. I'm, uh, I missed my damn plane, so I'm going to have to shoot up to Boston and back to Providence. Oh, I see. Well, I'm still... Doesn't look like I may be able to go there. Or go at all? That's right. Oh, I better not go until you, until you know. Okay, you're in... Uh, just leave your message where we can... Now. When do you think you'd know? Or do you, you don't know? Well, it looks like uh, it would be sometime... Why don't you go back into New York? All right. And then I'll be in touch with you. Okay, good. Because uh, you can always come up later. Okay, guys, uh, I guess it's not going too well, huh? Oh, yeah. For you because of the Mississippi thing. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll see you later. Okay, fine. Yeah. Reference to Mississippi there, Ted. Yes. Um, w- well, I remember that call. The, the phone calls tend to sound better than the office recordings. For technical reasons, the office recordings are, are tough. They're tough to understand, but the phone calls are, are generally better, although even they are not perfect. And I I wondered if they um, made Lem Billings' voice a little higher, and if the tapes got stretched over the years, because he does sound a little, a little funny. But um, well, that, that was his um, lifelong friend, Lem Billings, who, whom he met at Choate, and uh, was incredibly devoted to him, and they were they were devoted to each other. But you get a sense from JFK, which I got in many of these recordings, how unbelievably busy these guys are, and Kennedy just speaks very tersely, very fast in monosyllables, generally sort of right, yep, right, right often doesn't even say goodbye, and, and that's what happened in that that call. One of the things that I was struck by, it, it was just the amount of empty space on that tape. There was a five-minute tape, and these dictabelts, was it a technical issue, or was there often just tons of empty space where what would weird things just pop up weird out of nowhere? Weird things do pop up. You're absolutely right. Um, you, it's the most sophisticated office in the world, and an office from which nuclear missiles can be fired and yet they had a lot of trouble, just ordinary tape recording. Just and, stop and start. And in um, the memoir of his secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, there's a funny moment where she talks about how they had a squawk box that they installed and realized neither of them knew how to work it. They just abandoned it. Brilliant. Yeah. So, Ted, as I was getting ready to work on so many of Clinton's foreign trips, I'd make requests of White House television for pool coverage of Reagan's and Bush's trips overseas. And you get sort of these wonderful couple minutes of uh, of wild sound before a bilateral started, and you can hear a little bit of staff chatter. But generally, going up through Reagan, Bush one, Clinton, and Bush two, where Adam where Adam worked, you know, we aren't we we won't see, I don't think, in fifty years, this kind of richness that only comes from audio and not from the printed word. And you know, maybe I am thinking, Ted, that. The, le- the lengthy times that you sat down with Bill Clinton after he left office, those recordings went into making my life, but right. will we ever hear any of that? That's a good question, Josh. Um, I hope so, and I, I believe so. I think they were important. I mean, there, there are a couple different sets of tapes. There are the tapes during his presidency that he was making with Taylor Branch that would be fascinating to hear. I've, I've never heard those. And then I did... Uh, talk with him for a couple of years in the early stages of his writing that book. Um, my job was to ask him questions that would stir memories, and then he'd he'd talk aloud, which is a great way to write a first draft of a, of a book. And he has those tapes. Um, I don't think they're in his personal possession. I think they're probably in Little Rock in the library. But yes, they would make a wonderful book someday. And, and my experience just off the, the Kennedy tapes was that this really is rich new material that we can think we know everything about a person but the written record is not complete with the the oral record you do supplement it and and it's not just the words they're speaking you hear a lot in their voice in the in the tone of the voice and in the anger or sadness or happiness that you can you can detect in there it's it's important though to to note that the work that you've done that others do to, to ground these snippets of audio in context. What was the day? Where were they That's exactly? Right. And what was going on? What was what was the life of the president at that moment before you begin to understand what you're hearing? That's absolutely right. Um, I've done a lot of work in libraries of, of, of a different kind, not, not always presidential history. And it's amazing how much we can put online. We can easily scan the entire contents of books or thousands of books and just put them online. But it's not as valuable to just put something up there without some curatorial explanation to say, this is why this is important. It's Otherwise, it's like look, reading a phone book. And so we do need interpreters and not just people like me who went to grad school, but just people who are interested, who have done some work, have listened, have, have sought out some nugget of value that can then 
point to other people, and you and you and Josh are, are doing that just by by thinking aloud about your own experience in the presidency. Ted, let's let's take a turn towards the upcoming events here in Washington, uh, specifically the inauguration and the inaugural address. These are always such important speeches, uh, not because the world is tuned in in a way that they they normally aren't. Although that bully pulpit gives great uh, great access to the president to the world, but it is a set of principles for the presidency, for what. Despite the president saying, and not just this president who tends to say it a lot, you know, my top priority is this, or let me be clear, these speeches are so important because they are truly the distillation, the roadmap that one can follow right. for the next four years. You've been involved in writing them, so talk to us about what it is to, to be involved in a speech writing team at, at, the, at the presidential level and thinking about something of this magnitude. I actually came in right after the second inaugural for Bill Clinton, so I, I didn't work on one, although I did work on State of the Union addresses. Um, but yes, that's exactly right. It's a rare moment when all the outside noise in Washington stops and everyone listens and both parties uh, listen and the president almost inevitably says it's a time for all of us to work together. That message doesn't always get through, but I think this is an unusually important time for that message to get through because obviously we do have some gridlock and some serious problems inside Congress and, and out and out. I mean, just the, the you know the gun violence in Newtown... I kind of doubt he would mention that by name because it's too specific. And inaugural this is a speech for the ages, so there, the specificity right. is. Unpack that a little bit because this is, as a speechwriter, I would imagine the broad nature of what you're tackling. It will truly stand the test of time, right. and it's reading by historians a hundred years from now, hopefully. Right. Yeah. I mean that that is always the goal. It's rarely the uh, effect. I mean, we do forget them, and I even had a little trouble remembering the two Clinton inaugurals, although thanks to our friend the Internet, I was able to reread them before coming here. But um, that is the goal. The goal is to speak to the ages, that this is a once-in-four-years opportunity to say something beautifully and hopefully permanently. And we all know how much President Obama values eloquence. He he works hard. He always has worked hard at saying things well. And so this is... um, not quite the last chance, but a very important chance during his presidency to say what it is that he believes, what he's hoping to achieve over what is now an eight-year span, a long time, and how he hopes the country can come together better behind him and to pursue a vision. And there's a sermonic quality to these events. It is a little more exalted. It's There, there is a religious tone, if not explicitly religious, Nevertheless, there's a feeling that we are all here for a higher purpose, which is a religious kind of a thought. And so it'll be interesting. And the, the historic allusions are always very interesting. Which presidents will he quote? Which thinkers? So I, I can't wait. Let's hear just a little bit of what it was like in, uh, in 97 with President Clinton and then sort of pivot to the visual as we wrap with Ted Widmer. The American people returned to office, a president of one party and a Congress of another. Surely they did not do this to advance the politics of petty bickering and extreme partisanship they plainly deplore. No. They call all us instead to be repairers of the breach and to move on with America's mission. If Don Bear is behind a keyboard, you could almost yeah. get that message today, right? Yeah, yeah it hasn't changed much. Uh, well, there you know, was certainly a sermon-esque tone yeah. to the president's voice, just picking up Ted on what you had said there. And, and and unlike being in a joint session of Congress, which is the same image every time, you know, there's either the bitter cold of the 61 inaugural, and right. sort of every inaugural has a different image and the technology sort of makes it increasingly grand with with uh, jib cameras and right. and things and you know it, it made me harken back to Ted to some writing you did last year uh, on the opinionator for the New York Times about President Lincoln and how he captured people's imaginations not by necessarily by his words uh, or his speeches but by the visual as captured by Matthew Brady and this is a theme yep. that I've always been fascinated by what did you learn in your research well, about Lincoln and Brady? Um, 
I thought you were going to ask about the second inaugural, which is one of it may be the greatest speech in sure. American history. Um, but Lincoln and Brady uh, used each other very effectively. Lincoln knew that his photograph was uh, important when the whole idea of what the federal government was was shaky in the Civil War. I mean, we didn't know if the North would prevail and if the U- United States, as originally defined, would prevail. So just getting a photograph of a president out to a lot of people was very useful, the way looking at the Capitol or the Washington Monument or the White House today gives people a feeling of pride. It, it was a, an, an image of solidity, and he used that. But Brady also was thrilled to have Lincoln as a, as a client, and uh, his images of, of Lincoln are very, very important and helped him to get going as, a, as, a, as the preeminent photographer of his day, although maybe the greatest fo- Lincoln photographs are the, the last ones of his life, the Alexander Gardner portraits just before he was killed. But the um, the second inaugural of Lincoln's second inaugurals are tough. They're not quite as exciting as first right. inaugurals. You're you're starting the fifth year of an eight year presidency. It's a little hard to get people as motivated. But Lincoln gave a speech that truly was for the ages um, when when he did his second inaugural in March 1865. Last question for me, Ted. Uh, and we got you know you got to get to the Acela. But so you're on one more assignment here in Washington D.C. working at the State Department. And I imagine because of the work that you did with President Clinton helping record his memories, uh, Secretary of State Clinton is very conscious of what has happened in her department in the last four years. Secretaries of State may have not have had the, the lengthy tenures to think of its sweep in history. Can you share with our listeners what you've been working on with Secretary of State? Well, I've been there to offer some historical context to things that have been happening, but also to... Uh, be a historian, to interview her top aides and, and her about the changes in our foreign policy over the last four years. There have been a lot of them. There were a lot of them that were planned, <clears throat> some new efficiency brought to the department, and some new reliance on technology, because that that's changing everything, and making government work a lot faster and a lot better. But also there were, you know, all kinds of unexpected problems that, you know, the, the earthquake in Haiti, the, the Japan tsunami, the Arab Spring, and that, that always happens at uh, the high, le- high levels of government. Even the smartest people in the world can be surprised by what life brings. And so I'm interviewing the top aides to get their sense of how this work went the last four years. And it's, it's, very, uh, it's very moving. I always feel when I talk to people, including you and Adam, who, who served in the government, that the American people are getting a lot of work out of some very talented public servants who certainly are not doing it for the money and and that we're you know our democracy we we see a lot of evidence of how it doesn't work in congress but when you meet one on one with the people who are giving year year after year their lives to to the service um to the people it's it's pretty moving ted widmer thank you for for joining us on polyoptics and uh i think we could all do uh, uh a good turn by by looking at uh, listening in uh, the secret White House recordings of John F. Kennedy. There's so much uh, treasure there uh, of our history and the presidency and, and your great work, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Ted. Kennedy, 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 a man for president who's seasoned through and through but not so doggone seasoned that he won't try something new a man who's old enough to know and young enough to do well it's up to you it's up to you it's strictly up to you do you like a man who answers straight people of the united states this is potus adam i've wanted to have bill nichols on for a long time our next guest he's the managing editor of politico we go way back to the clinton years when he was covering the white house for usa today and then moved on to cover the state department and really was part of the founding team that brought politico to washington bill thanks for coming down joining us on polyoptics it is a pleasure so we may have lost leon back to the walnut farm but we still have gene bruce jack and maybe ron Klain, and maybe we'll get gergen back to a Rose Garden ceremony. If you can go back to USA Today and we get Harris back to uh, the Post and Purdom to the Times, can we just go in a time warp back to the 90s instead of doing the second term thing? Absolutely. And I think if we can wait a few years, we may even have a Clinton back in the White House. So what would be better than that, huh? That'd be outstanding. Uh, 
Bill, certainly captivating my interest this week was the piece that uh, Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen did on the Hell No Caucus, which you were the of which you were the editor. I want to hear a little bit of Vandehei and Allen talking to Tom Cotton, and then sort of get your whole perspective, basically both from a journalist and as a, a child of the South of Kentucky, of what this all means for the next term. Since you were elected on November 6th, have you heard from a single person in the district or outside who said that they want you to vote for more gun control? I have, yes. I've heard from a few, uh, but I would say that it's running uh, probably more than nine to one uh, against further gun controls uh, and rather in favor of things like addressing mental health issues or adding armed security officers in schools. This guy's not just like a right-wing nut job. He is a House Republican. He's mainstream inside the Republican conference. Most of these guys come from Southern districts. Most of them come from districts that Mitt Romney won overwhelmingly. And very few represent places that Barack Obama did well in the election anyways. So, Bill, tell us about the Hell No Caucus, Tom Cotton, the Club for Growth, and why Jim and Mike decided to focus on it. Well, let me start with just talking a little bit about this new feature that Jim and Mike are doing, which we call Behind the Curtain, which is sort of self-explanatory. I mean, they wrote a lot towards the end of the election cycle, which was a happy thing for all of us at Politico. And basically what they're trying to do is uh, kind of pull back the curtain on stuff that those of us who are working in Washington uh, take as sort of ordinary gospel truth, but perhaps is not communicated to our readers as much. So in the case of this piece, uh, it's trying to look at, uh, trying to address the, uh, at least the cocktail party question that I get, which is, what the hell is up with these guys on the Republican right? Like, what are they doing? Why don't they compromise? What's the deal? And, uh, And also the underlying stereotype, which is certainly one that I'm keen to, that most of these are yahoos from, you know, the hollers of the South and walking around barefoot and barely literate and don't know what they're doing. So they focused on Tom Cotton, who, as it turns out, is a Harvard law grad, an extremely smart guy, uh, an Iraq war veteran. And sort of the gist of the piece is, surprise, surprise, he actually believes in what he's saying. Uh, And there's politically no reason for him to compromise. He was elected from a very conservative district in Arkansas uh, where he was the most conservative member of the field, one who was anointed by the club for growth. And uh, so the piece tries to look at both him personally and also sort of as as a moment in Washington culture where you have this bunch of backbenchers in the House, and the reason that they are not going to compromise is because they don't want to, and they don't it doesn't match with their ideology. But yeah. there, there's another part of this, too, isn't there, that beyond the not, not wanting to, there's the not having to. There's this, this idea uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that this article puts forward as well, that they're impenetrable. They are not beholden to the rest of the country, uh, and, and, and popular opinion doesn't speak to them, doesn't pierce the veil of what's going on in their district and how super solid they are themselves, it would appear, but also this majority in the House is one that people think is likely to sustain for some time to That's come. absolutely right. And, uh, you know, if you look at the, at the coming debt limit debate, um, there's real, no real political price for the Tom Cottons of the world right. to, to pay for <clears throat> default. I mean, which is to much of Washington an unthinkable concept. He actually thinks that might not be a bad thing, uh, that the country needs to take its medicine and maybe the shock treatment is the way to go. Uh, so I thought this, uh, you know, this is the, probably the fourth or fifth in this series. We'll be doing it every Tuesday uh, and also have a, a, a video to go along with it on the site. Uh, and it's something we're really excited about. These guys have incredible access. And also, as you heard Jim in his uh customary fashion doing his sort of straight talk shtick on that uh, video on that audio bite that you heard uh, they, they really have a capacity to kind of cut through the BS and hopefully that's what we're going to be doing on a regular basis and that's what we try and do here Belmar and me with people like Bill Nichols uh, on easy to cut through the BS with me you know that exactly Chung uh, we'll have to explain Chung sometime later but um, another part of the behind the curtain aspect of this story is which is sort of the eye-opener moment that happens in the second paragraph, is tucked inside that envelope and several to come were $300,000 in checks from club members, enough to help lift the 35-year-old former Army captain from obscurity and 47 percentage points down in his first internal poll. What 
how is it for this Northeastern uh, commentator that someone might get a FedEx full of $300,000 in checks? Because the Club for Growth looked at that race and decided that Cotton was the, the truest of the true believers, and that's the business that they're in. And they're doing it in primary after primary, both on the House side and on the Senate side. And, you know, the, the, the failure of so-called Plan B with John Boehner uh, right before the holidays there's probably no single entity more responsible for that than Club for Growth. Uh, everyone realizes that they could be primaried at any moment. It's a huge problem uh, for the party. Uh, but, you know, I, again, he's sort of emblematic of a, of a number of challengers that got picked, presumably, sort of out of nowhere. Uh, but that's a wonderful detail, but I think also really speaks to the incredible power the club has right now. Yeah, I, I read it, and less surprising than the idea that that, that money was coming in or that there's gambling going on in there uh, was was this idea that, that there are organizations and very serious uh, leaders within the Republican Party uh, who are so prescient, who are thinking so hard about where and when to apply uh, the resources. And, and this is a case of, as you said, almost plucked from obscurity uh, and, and given the opportunity to excel, and he did. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, to shamelessly uh, hawk another Politico story that Jonathan Martin did a couple weeks ago, which also has had the benefit of being edited by me. <laughs> uh, he did a piece uh, that there's this, there's now this counter movement growing to deal with the primary problem. Uh, so there's a on the establishment side, on the non-club side, they're trying to band together, whether it's at the uh, the NSRC or the, uh, the other other of the campaign groups on the Hill. Uh, to try to find ways to support more, quote-unquote, mainstream uh, potential candidates. Shelley Moore Capito in West Virginia is a, is a very good example of this, where as soon as she announced that she was going to run, uh, the club sort of said, nah, I don't know if she really passes the true believer test. So there's other forces in the party that are trying to uh, emerge as a counterweight to the club. And in your home state of Kentucky, Bill, other coverage in Politico this week uh, focuses on the potential candidacy of Ashley Judd on the Democratic side. Put on your 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 Kentucky hat and tell us if there's any prospect for a victory over Mitch McConnell. I just pray every day that it happens because <laughs> the, the idea of Ashley Judd and Mitch McConnell standing on a dais together is just almost too good to be true. Um you know, I don't think she can win, but I think there's still enough of a reflexive Democratic vote in Kentucky that it could be interesting. What's been fascinating is how seriously McConnell is taking the possibility, and they're already doing, you know, opposition research on her and sort of selectively leaking stuff, and I just think it would be such great fun. I might have to go back to reporting and cover that one. It would be great. Another aspect of your reporting, Bill, after you left the White House was to cover the the State Department, uh, I think, under Secretary Colin Powell. So announcement this week or the week before that uh, John Kerry would be nominated to succeed Hillary Rodham Clinton. You covered Powell, you know, uh, you, and and his successors, and certainly you know uh, Secretary Clinton. What kind of Secretary of State uh, do you think John Kerry will be given the demands of that role in this day and age? You know, I think he'll be a pretty successful Secretary of State. Uh, I think he's shown that he can be a real team player within the administration. Uh, those are the the basket of issues that he's really focused on, certainly since his presidential run. Uh, so I think that will be a relatively seamless transition. I think the one that we're all watching is Chuck Hagel. Uh, if indeed he does get confirmed at the Defense Department, uh, this is someone with virtually no management experience and going to a building where that has proved to be a potential for disaster. Josh, and you and I will remember Lest Aspen from way back in the, the, the dim mists of history. Uh, so that's going to be a fascinating confirmation, and I think it'll be really interesting to have someone with that uh, kind of background, someone who's a vet, uh, but also someone who, uh, I think to put it mildly, doesn't suffer fools uh, particularly gladly. Uh, so I think that's the one that could bring the fireworks, and we love that, so we're very pro-Hagel at, at Politico. <laughs> I love the uh, the conversations that are going on in Republican circles uh, about Hegel, uh, at least the ones that I've been privy to. Um, lobbyists, influencers, folks on K Street who are more apt to read Politico Pro than than Politico itself, 
And to some extent, there's just a whole lot of head scratching. You know, like, I'm not sure exactly how we're supposed to feel about this and, and, and what we're all going to do. Yeah, and it, it's, I think it's interesting from every angle. It's fascinating why the president made the choice, yeah. uh, which I still can't. There's nothing against Senator Hagel. Well, Hagel, I think we've got to know one thing, though, and, and I think you'll agree with this. The president of the United States made this decision with the belief that he was going to get it done, that he was willing to do what he needed to do uh, to see this through and felt that they had a plan behind the scenes to cobble together enough Democrats and Republicans to put it through. There wasn't a big question mark like, can we do it? They they went ahead and did it and thinking they had a really good plan to make it so. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and, and I think there was a certain element of he wanted Susan Rice. That didn't work out. And he was damn if he was going to have another one that he really wanted to go by the wayside. And I think they probably will get it through. It, it'll be messy. And I think uh, one of the interesting things, uh, you know, there's this fascinating relationship between, at least in my view, and we've written a lot about this at Politico, uh, between Obama and the friends of Israel, the sort of institutional friends of Israel, and the whole democratic Jewish community. And they sort of had knitted things back together in the election cycle. And then they get Chuck Hagel, who I think, you know, his anti-Israel characteristics, in my view, have been pretty wildly exaggerated. But I think what happens with him vis-a-vis Israel in the confirmation hearings could be really interesting. And I think he could find himself, and the president could find himself, get really boxed in by how pro-Israel he has to be in order to get confirmed. It's just another part of this really complex and, at least to me, really interesting relationship uh, with Obama and that world on those issues. Well, that raises another interesting point too, Bill, which is the whole psychology of Barack Obama as the the loner or outsider versus uh, the way the gregariousness of Clinton and so many of the foreign trips that you and I were part of. And, you know, at the end of the day, either he would entertain uh, groups of reporters at dinner or you would certainly be out there with aides. You had your own two rounds of golf with President Clinton during his administration. I think President Obama has played a huge amount of golf, but only with Marvin Nicholson and a few others, certainly not with with Bill Nichols. Uh, We can't cite the golf without without putting the uh, the cherry on top of that. How did you do in those two rounds of golf? Uh, I, I managed to uh, beat the president both times. Both times. And I did it, but very narrowly, so I both saved face in terms of— And where of, did you play? Uh, we played out in Jackson Hole, uh, where Josh and I played a lot of golf. Uh, now it can be told, when yep. both of us were supposed to be working. Exactly. Damn uh, advancement. Those were the days, yeah. Uh, Josh did an excellent job of advancing the, the, the local— <laughs> I'm sure uh, he What was the name of our pro again? Oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, but but what about this, that, that uh, you, you know, when we would go on these trips, Bill, and we'd be out with Clinton until one in the morning. Both both his predecessor, George W. Bush, and Obama, they're doing these quick trips in and out. They're not really kind of getting into the cultures that they're visiting. And that may speak something to a relationship that we might have with foreign countries, especially Israel. What's, what's up with Obama and his relationships with foreign leaders and the way he conducts himself. I mean, I think it's a reflection of, of as you said at the beginning of the question, of, of of his personality, which is, at least in my history of covering uh, folks in politics, really, really unusual. I mean, he's a politician who really doesn't seem to actually like politics very much. I mean, if you define politics by what Bill Clinton likes to do, and again, Josh, I, like you, my formative years were spent with, you know, the, the, the Michael Jordan of retail politics. So that's perhaps not a fair uh, standard to hold the president to. But it's, it's the most common complaint that you hear from Democrats and from Republicans, but I guess more tellingly from Democrats. Uh, he doesn't do the little stuff. Uh, I think the, the stagecraft, uh, a topic on which you both are, are experts, is something that uh, he not only doesn't enjoy, but he sort of disdains. Uh, I remember at the beginning of the administration when uh, the the shoe bomber incident happened on Christmas Day. I mean, there were reports that the staff had to really push him to go on television, uh, which you know I think to all of us is a no-brainer. It's something you have to do. And I think his view is, you know, I'm kind of a postmodern figure. I'm we're beyond politics. We're we're beyond that. The, the country doesn't really need that. Well, I, I think of course they do. There is a ceremony, a ceremonial, you know, almost performing aspect to the job, 
that is not just shtick. It's it's very important, and that's the part of it that he clearly doesn't like. So that I, I think that I haven't gone on any foreign trips with him, but certainly the sense is that he's kind of doing this with gritted teeth and wants to get back and do his thing at home. And uh, certainly when I travel overseas, uh, you know, you get the sense that, uh, particularly in Europe, which is where I am mostly, you know, he's still a popular figure, but it's nothing like it was in 2008 because the relationships, not just with those populaces, but with those leaders, uh, just have not materialized. I want to jump in and ask a question on foreign uh, affairs for a second because I know uh, it, during your time uh, at USA Today, among other things, uh, you covered uh, Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to think for a second, it was it was a little bit of a conversation at points in the Republican uh, primaries, uh, even a little bit more uh, in the presidential campaign. Um, what do you see uh, as, as you look forward to the next uh, couple years for the president and Russia and, and how we're going to be dealing with uh, the reemergence of Vladimir Putin? I mean, I, I guess I see it uh, very much as I view China policy, which is is, is pretty cynically uh, in that there is not really a Republican or Democratic policy on China. I think that's true on Russia as well. There's a Fortune 500 policy on China and Russia. It's business-driven, isn't it? It, it, it really is. Uh, I mean, there's no even remotely objective to look at Putin and come up with any view other than it's deteriorated dramatically during his time there. I mean, the most recent uh, decree ending you know, uh, adoptions uh, to U.S. parents is just, it's abhorrent. Uh, and Obviously, there are people in the administration that feel that way. You know, as, as far as foreign policy, I, I think Iran is at the top of the list, and Russia is going to play, has to play, a, an important role there. And I think increasingly we're just at a point where it's almost impossible to deal with the Kremlin. So, Bill, just sort of turning the tables from sort of what we're all observing in the, uh, in the corridors of government to actually what's happening within the rest of Washington and specifically within the journalistic establishment, uh, a lot of us who follow this stuff closely can't help but have seen the November memo that uh, John Harris sent around to political staffers outlining sort of a, a next stage in Politico's evolution. Can you share with our listeners sort of what drew you originally from this your career status at USA Today to join this this band of upstarts that, that overturned the journalistic establishment in Washington and where it's headed in the next couple of years? Sure. Uh, you know, I left USA Today. Uh, I've I, I look now a lot smarter than I actually was because uh, I, when I left in 2006, it was really before the, the sort of building of Washington journalism really began to, to burn in earnest. Uh, things had started to get bad, but it hadn't become awful. I had a great job and, uh, and loved my time there. But I knew John Harris, as you know. We were friends. And, uh, you know, very simply, it uh, I got into journalism because uh, it seemed a good way to not actually work for a living. And uh, I, I love to write. I love to interview people. I love to travel around. And it's a hell of a lot of fun. And I think for most of us in the business at that point, which now in the world of the web seems, seems eons ago, uh, we weren't having a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, I knew with John, I didn't know Vanda High as well, um, but I knew with John it was going to be an absolutely quality product. I figured that, you know, if it failed, I was smart enough I could get a job somewhere. And my wife, whom, as you know, Josh, is a whole lot smarter than yep. me, said, you know, go have an adventure. You're about to turn 50. What the hell? How You know, what? what's the worst that can happen? And that she's given me a lot of good advice over the years, but that's probably the best. And it's just been a gas. So it wasn't uh, a desire to stay in, in, in the building in Roslyn that you so loved. I really love well, That was just the, a French uh, benefit. You know, I've, uh, many of your listeners probably haven't been to Roslyn, but when you've been to Roslyn, it's hard to go anywhere else. I mean, the, 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 the cozy there is really, really special. There's a Chipotle across <laughs> oh, the street it's now. Fan, you know, it's, it's fantastic. There's a CVS in the building. Like, it, does, it doesn't get any better. But, you know, I'd never done any anything entrepreneurial, uh, though, you know, it, weirdly enough, I've, I've now, most of my time in journalism has been spent at two upstarts, mm-hmm. USA Today and now Politico. But um, that's really the main reason that I did it, and that has been probably the biggest reason that I've enjoyed it so much. It's just been fun. Uh, it's been back-breaking work at times, 
Um, you know, particularly in the beginning, we didn't have the slightest idea what we were doing on many days. But uh, to see it become what it's become has really been great. As, as far as the future... Uh, yeah, I bring think, us behind the curtain. Do us behind the curtain on the future. Uh, I, th- I think Adam uh, uh, very nicely mentioned Politico Pro, which uh, is our, our, our paywalled portion of the site. We now have seven uh, subject areas that are subscription-based, though we use an awful lot of the content uh, free. Uh, and that's going to continue to grow. Um, you know, I think that'll probably be the, that's the main thing you can look for in terms of our evolution and just trying to stay on top of the, the various uh, new technology that, uh, that are, are coming onto the scene. What about, and we talked about this, and Josh spent a lot of time focusing on it over the summer, the e-books, because there's this, you know, you talk about not working for a living, and really what you're getting at is that you love what you do, and that when it's fun, it's not work at all. And that's where you are again in your career, and I get that. But for your journalists, the people who you edit every day, who you, you really love and admire, these guys have a very specific set of tasks from the boss. And it's sometimes described as, you know, crackhead deadline journalism. I mean, it's just constant, it's relentless. And yet at the same time, you have these guys who don't normally get the kind of uh, wide berth to, to do a little bit more reporting and tease things out. So you guys have really pioneered, I thought, uh, with, with the e-books through the election, something that, that hopefully you're going to continue. We definitely will, and it's a great question because that's really one of the main reasons that we've done it. Um, you know, we're always looking for additional uh, streams of revenue. I mean, John and Jim and I like to joke that we are indeed a for-profit uh you know, publication. And uh, there were a lot of times in journalism, at least in my past career, where I think many journalists didn't understand that. I have a radio show I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Uh, I think we uh, can monetize it. Uh, but uh, both the e-books and we also do uh, a series of, of glossy magazines, and we're going to increase the rate of publica- public publishing those this year, uh, which, you know, they make money. Uh, we wouldn't do them otherwise. But they also, for our photographers, for our designers, and as you mentioned, for our reporters, it gives them a chance to stretch, and the ebooks have been terrific. The response to them has been great, uh, and uh, the reporters, you know, we've made a real commitment to wall off their time so that they have the ability to report and write them, and we definitely want to con- continue to do that. It's, you know, I, I think our readers like it, but just as much, it's it's really fun and rewarding for us. Can I sneak back in with one more question here, Joshua? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> My role in Washington, what what I do, uh, is work on a lot of advocacy uh, campaigns, a lot of which is done digitally in conjunction with sort of traditional lobbying, et cetera. But Politico, besides being an informing and educational resource for most Americans, it's also a conduit for digital ad delivery, okay? And uh, you guys do a great job, and I'm not just talking about monetizing it, but having a... a a differentiator. There are, there are places that you can be within the Politico family from the, the playbook, which is just a simple email, to blogs, which are even more uh, useful and valuable for people because they're constantly being updated. They're not just read and run. It's, hey, check back. You want to check back at that political address at least three or four times a day because there's going to be new material coming online. Um, the question then is, how cognizant are you all editorially about the advertising that's going on uh, in driving uh, the, the, the revenues? Because we are using Politico uh, from the other side of the fence tremendously, and you guys know that, and yet we're trying to be smart and juxtapose a lot of what we're talking about with what you guys are talking mm-hmm. about. Now, we don't, no one talks to one another. But it's, I wonder what, on the editorial side, you, know, you think of that, or do you ever? Great well, question, given, Bill, your new kind of uh, portfolio of duties as well, yeah? Yeah, we, um, we're very cognizant of it, and that's been an interesting evolution. I mean, you know, I'm 54 years old, so I'm a very, I come from a very sort of traditional, you don't even talk to the ad side. Uh, you stay away from that part of the building. If they come to you, you run or you refuse to talk to them. That was idiotic. And, you know, we came into this feeling that we had to begin to do things differently. But on the other hand, we had to cling very tightly to the basic principles that had always been observed in the business. And through a lot of give and take, I mean, we've also done this in, 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 in doing events, which has become a, a big part I'm of our business I'm glad you brought model. that up. That is a big part of your business model, and, it, and it, it can be something that people are very attracted to. Yeah, and we, we've, we had very full and frank discussions about it, and I think we've all come to a place where 
we're very comfortable with it. And I think it was a it was it was a matter of educating the ad side on what they could and couldn't do, and frankly, on educating the editorial side on some things that they could do. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a editor sitting down with the ad staff and giving them an overview of what's going to be going on in the Hill in the next three weeks. Now, much beyond that line, it's very inappropriate, and we w- and we don't do that. Right, you're not giving them targets. Of you're giving not. them information. Yeah, well, you're, it's it's like any editorial board meeting. I mean, you're, you're you're sitting down with some very smart people to get read in on where the state of play is. Yeah, it it, it would be stupid not to do that. Absolutely. Uh, so you know, it is something that we spent a lot of time wrestling with in the beginning, and I think we now have enough systems in place, and people have been in their jobs long enough. I mean, on events, I'm never involved because that staff knows very much what they can do, what they can't do. I mean, they sometimes will come to me or others on the editorial side looking for, you know, we're going to do this event. Who would you suggest would be good? But all of our events are open. Any journalist can attend. A major point is to make news. Uh, So, you know, what's not to like? Well, Bill Nichols, uh, before we let you go, I mean, you are making news. You made a lot of news this week with with the Behind the Curtain piece on uh, on Tom Cotton. He's now all over the cable nets. But uh, can you, given your uh, uh, unique perch, give us an early line, both in the GOP and the Democrats, and who do you think will emerge as 2016 uh, leading candidates? And do you think uh, the Secretary of State will end up ter- putting her hat in the ring? You know, I just have to assume that she will. And particularly being on with a, a fellow former Clintonite, uh, I know she says she won't. Uh, it's just hard for me to imagine the two of them seeing the possibility uh, being so real, you know, presuming that her health is okay. Uh, I, I do think at the end of the day she'll run. And it's a lot more interesting on the Republican side. Um, you know, I, I like Christie a lot. Uh, he's, he's got some obviously some real drawbacks. Uh, I guess if I had to say someone right now, I would probably say Marco Rubio because I think the party is so... Uh, desperate to to do something different in terms of, of gender and diversity, but uh, I think that side's tougher. But yeah, I, I, I say that uh, that she runs. That we've got another Clinton campaign to have fun with. Well, Bill Nichols, uh, having personally enjoyed the premiere episode of Justified and got my full Kentucky fix, I thought uh, I, we get you again. Uh, and uh, here's to Judd in fourteen. Absolutely. So, Josh, uh, we, we lost someone in the polyoptics world this week. Uh, a lot has been said about Richard Ben Kramer uh, this week. But for, for people who love this show, love White House Advance, the, the tome that is what it takes uh, by Richard Ben Kramer is one that it's a must read. You have to have been there and you have to understand through his eyes what it is to do the things that we have done. Yeah, I've had it for 20 years, and it's sort of dog-eared on my shelf, and I haven't read it for a long time, but amazingly, it jumps like to 15 on Amazon this week as if people have never heard it before. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about Richard Ben Kramer and what a great writer he was and about his Ted Williams piece in Esquire. Right. And they're not pausing, I think, to actually hear the words as they're said. So just as a web-only special uh, outside of our usual uh, hour on SiriusXM, Let's you and I share a little bit of that great first chapter of what it takes. The price of being poppy. So George Bush is coming to the Astrodome. Disaster in the making. The thing is, it just couldn't happen. George Bush couldn't just fly in, catch a cab to the ballpark, get his ticket torn, grab a beer on his way to the seat. No, he'd come too far for that. Weeks before the trip, the director of advance in the office of the vice president, OVP, had told the White House military officer, WAMO, to lay a plane, Air Force Two, in the backup Air Force Two. That meant coordination with the squadron at Andrews Air Force Base for a special air mission. Luckily, the trip was to Houston, where Bush went all the time, so the Air Force didn't have to fly his cars. The Secret Service kept a vice presidential limousine, a black armored stretch Cadillac, with a discreet seal on the door parked and secured 24 hours a day in the basement of the Houston Civic Center. Still, the Astrodome would have to be wired, so that meant the Air Force transport plane had to fly in new communications gear, extra Secret Service materiel. That, in turn, required an alert from the CVAM at the Pentagon, the Air Force Vice Chief of Staff in charge of Special Air Missions, who would task the Military Airlift Command with the Vice Presidential Support Mission, or, in Pentagon parlance, the Volant Silver. Meanwhile, in Houston, 
The local office of the Secret Service started looking over the Astrodome, picking out the holding rooms, secure hallways, choke points, command posts, and pathways for the vice president. This information was bumped up the ladder to the Secret Service VPPD, the Vice Presidential Protective Division in Washington, which in 10 days would have its own advance team on scene. When that team arrived, the lead advance man would convene his own staff of three site advance and a press advance, along with the four Secret Service advance. The chief of the local office of the Secret Service, two WACA advance men, and the captain of the Houston Police Department's Dignitary Protection Division to sit down for a meeting with the host of the affair, the Astros' owner, Dr. John McMullen. The critical question? What kind of event did McMullen want the vice president for? Sure, it's the first ball thing, but where would he make the throw? McMullen said, well, there's the pitcher's mound. The mound? The Secret Service didn't want him exposed on the field like a baited goose. Did McMullen want his 44,000 fans held at the gates and frisked for metal? Absolutely not. Still, the advance lead said... The political people might want him on the mound, you know, taller. (laughs) Well, uh, said the Secret Service, you've got your choice. You want him on the mound, we put him in a vest. You might ask if he can throw in a flak vest. (laughs) The lead advance said this was a matter for Washington. He bumped it up the ladder to the office of the vice president, Washington HQ. Meanwhile, the Secret Service advance bumped it up to his Washington HQ. In the course of the next two days... The dozen men would walk over every foot of ground that the vice president would tread, scouting this bit of his future life. They were seeing it as his eyes might, then improving the view, imagining and removing every let or hindrance. They were determined that nothing would be unforeseen. And of course, they were timing every movement. Then, for all the following days and most of the nights, they would fan out on their respective turfs. The site advanced to each location the vice president would visit. The press advanced to local papers, TVs, radio stations. Then to the sites to inspect for sound cables, platforms, camera angles, and backdrops. The service to all the sites for inch-by-inch security checks. The Houston PD to its command post. The WACA guys to the phones, cables, switch boxes, walkie-talkies, cellulars, and other wondrous gizmos the vice president might require the head of the VP's Houston operation, and the lead advance to the three-room office created for the occasion, fully equipped and volunteer-staffed in a wing of the Houstonian. From this office, day by day, the lead advance faxed to the director of advance and the schedulers in Washington the minute-by-minute breakdown of the visit. With every transmission, this was refined by two minutes here, ten minutes there, a holding room added, an extra car in the motorcade. And each day, by return fax, the Washington OVP sent out a new version. With its additions and refinements, Lee Atwater would be a guest aboard Air Force Two, need a guest car in the motorcade. Approval on the interview with ABC in the broadcast booth, third inning. Then, each night in Houston, the advance team reconvened for another countdown meeting, pre-living the trip anew. The ultimate product of this process was a sheaf of papers detailing not only the schedule, but a description with diagram of each event, the staffing, on the plane, on the ground, assignments for every car in every motorcade, and phone numbers, hard wire and cellular, for every division of the traveling party at every site. In Washington, the night before the trip, all this data would be printed in a booklet, four and a quarter inches wide by five and a half high, just the size of a suit pocket, with baby blue stiff paper cover, the front one printed with a handsome black vice presidential seal. This booklet was called The Bible, and in a sense, the making of the Bible was the making of the trip. Little that was not in its pages was going to happen in the life of the man. And with the Bible's completion, a certain psychic line was crossed. The trip to the ballgame was no longer a plan. It was an event of the vice presidency. It was at this point, with the final retype, that the first letters of words began to jump up and salute. In the Bible, that is, in the life of George Bush, every noun he touched became a proper noun. So the pregame reception had to become the reception, or the cheap molded plastic across a steel frame would become, with the brush of his backside, the box seat. Even as his person, the locus of Vput, the big gulp of this institutional juice, became, had to become in the Bible, a black type, all caps monolith that began every scheduled item 
the vice president. Adam Belmar, just reading that, it brings back so many memories because when that book came out, I worked my first campaign as an advance man in 1988, doing those very events, doing that, that exact sequence, and to have Richard Ben Kramer devote his first chapter, the first words of what it takes to our art form was amazing. And then, you know, the biggest payoff in that chapter was could Vice President George Bush actually make a throw of 60 feet 6 inches to Alan Ashby, the catcher for the Houston Astros uh, in the All-Star game, uh, with wearing a bulletproof black jacket that the Secret Service made him wear? Well, it was perfect foreshadowing uh, by Richard Ben Kramer in the way that he crafted that first chapter. But if you've lived it, and you've experienced it. He captures it so exceedingly detailed, specifically well. And his writing is just perfect. And, 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 the, and the, 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 the viewpoints of all the different people who are involved are, are so well captured. And if you just don't know anything about what he's talking about, and you think that it, it, it intrigues you, then this is a book that's just going to wrap you up and take you in and never let you go until its last page is turned. Um, and then again, if you're listening to this and you didn't like that at all, then this is not the show for exactly. you. Exactly. Uh, go out and buy it on Amazon. Richard Ben Kramer, rest in peace. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Polyoptics.